Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word, that you are a speaking God who loves to feed us. And we pray that through your Holy Spirit, that you'll speak through me and you'll open the hearts of the people here, that we may be fed by your word, that we can go out and live to glorify your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, and one more thing before we start. Uh, I don't know if you're used to bringing a Bible with you. Uh, I have a habit of referring to Bible passages again and again through my sermons. So if you can actually bring one of these things um, in the future, that'd be great. And uh, for many of you who are technologically adept, I think this would be one of the very few times you're allowed to bring technological things to, to the church and look at it if you have a Bible with you there um, through it. So let's, uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to chapter 6, Gospel of John, chapter 6. And we started our reading from verses 14 and 15. Well, after people, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is coming to the world. Jesus, knowing that they invented Uh, that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. They intended to come and make him king by force is an amazing statement on multiple levels. Um, On one level, it's amazing because people, uh, there aren't really that many people who need to be forced to be king. People do all kinds of things to get there, to, to be in power, and even more to stay in power. But they need to force Jesus to be the king. But the surprise is even bigger when we delve into the text, delve into the the chapter. If you see uh, in verse 4 of the chapter, the feast of Passover is the background of this miracle. And and remember, Israelites celebrated the deliverance of Egypt, uh, deliverance of Israel out of Egypt during Passover. Uh, Their time, one time of wandering in the desert for 40 years. And God fed them their manna, bread from heaven, and sustained the nation through their wandering in the desert for 40 years. And it's against this backdrop of Passover, Jesus performs this miracle of feeding the 5,000. Jesus fed the crowd with two fish and five loaves, which is a staple diet of the day. And the crowd saw something here. They were reminded of what happened in the past. And so they began to say in verse 14, Surely this is the prophet who is is to come into the world. Perhaps they remember that the Messianic prophecy of Deuteronomy 18, 15-19, that a prophet like Moses was supposed to come. And yet, knowing that Jesus is like Moses, crowd thinks they can force Jesus to be the king, to do what they want to make him king, to be something that he doesn't want to be. They think they can control Jesus to get what they want. They wanted to make him king by force, and Jesus withdraws. But Jesus knows their hearts, and he reveals their, their thoughts in verse 26. If we go down, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw a miraculous sign I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus points out that the miracle that he performed was not mere miracle, but a miraculous sign. A sign that pointed to a deeper reality. But of course, the crowd misses the spiritual significance. They wonder how great it would be to have a king who can fill their stomach. 
They are materialists who are so obsessed with material things of this world that they're not able to see God's blessing. What God offers them, and they want to exploit Jesus, like a marketing company exploiting a star. They miss the significance of the miracle because they are seeking the wrong thing. They don't see that Jesus is the bread of life because they're looking for physical bread. They're looking for someone to deliver them out of oppression, to fill their political ambition. They want to force Jesus to be their king. I wonder why you came to church this morning. What do you want from Jesus today? And are we all that different from the crowd that searches for Jesus in order to make him king by force? I don't know. Um, many of you, uh, well, many of us go to church for the pursuit of the better. We want to go to a better university, to have a better job, better health, better car, or in an improved version of our spouses. We come to church because we know what we want in life, and we want Jesus to help us to get them. They wanted to make Jesus, they wanted to force him to be king. And we want things too, and we use Jesus often to get them. Looking for wrong things, we miss the true blessing of God's very self. And if you don't think you're included in this, in that, bless you. And that's, that, that, that is awesome. That, that's really great. But do examine your heart and your prayer life. I think what we pray for is possibly one of the uh, best ways to tell what we really want with God. We don't pray for things that we don't have. Uh, we have already, right? And we, we're looking for something when we pray. We also pray for things that are very dear to us. And if your non-Christian friends heard you praying, would they be able to tell that you do not worship mammon? the god of money. Venus, goddess of love. Bacchus, god of wine. Karna, goddess, uh, god of health. Fema, god of fame. But would they hear you praying only for these things? When the money's short, do we pray for God to give us contentment? Or, we, or do we pray for more money? When our health is deteriorating, do we cry out only for God to restore our health or for God to be honored in the way that we suffer? And do we even ask ourselves if money, fame, health, better job, better spouses, bigger houses, cars, more comfort are the things that God actually wants us to have? Jesus knows our hearts. You are looking for me, he said in verse 26. Not because you saw a miraculous sign I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. But then he continues in verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed the seal of approval. And you might remember... Um, Jesus talking about such food once before in the Gospel of John, in chapter 4. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, 
and chapter 4 verse 34 my food is to, to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work Jesus said um, to, the, to his disciples that his food was to do the will of his father and that is the key to doing the work that will not spoil God's will for us is what we should be searching for whether you are a stay-at-home mom, caretaker, or maid, or professor, or banker, what matters is that you are doing the will of God. For that food does not spoil. What we do in front of people, even if they're powerful people, what we do in front of many, many people, even if it's thousands of people, if that's work outside of God's will, they will spoil But even the very little things that you do in front of God, in front of Jesus, will last forever. And do not waste your life seeking the wrong things that will spoil, things that will fade away like mist when the Lord returns. Seek God's will. Pursue things that are important to God, for they will last eternally. And for Jesus, being the king of Israel was such that work. It wasn't the will of the Father. God's will for him was to die on the cross. But what is God's will for us, you ask? Well, the crowd thought the same thing and asked in verse 28, what must we do to do do the uh, works God requires? The answer Jesus gives is simple. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. To believe in the identity of Jesus. That he is the Lord, the creator, the God himself. This, of course, isn't the only will of God for all of us, but it is the one that's most fundamental. Believe in Jesus and you'll never be thirsty, he says. Believe in the Lord and you will have eternal life and he will raise you up on the last day, he says. And it is really through faith alone we receive this most fundamental gift for all of us. Trust in Jesus is the most fundamental will of God for us. And this is simple, but it's also one that is really all-encompassing. It has a wide, wide stretch For all of our lives will be lived according to God's will if we truly believe that Jesus is our Lord. Trusting in the Lordship of Christ affects really every aspect of our lives. In all different levels, in our offices, in classrooms, living rooms, in the kitchen, in the bedrooms, how we eat, what we eat, how we conduct our businesses, how we teach, how we talk to people, how, talk to, how we talk to our families and colleagues. Believe, trust, and live according to God's will. Affect, that, that affects all of our lives, all aspects of our lives. And before leaving London, I had a bucket list of all the uh, to-do lists. Um, so I went to St. Paul's Cathedral. Again, uh, uh, Christopher uh, Christopher Wren's uh, cathedral. It's a beautiful cathedral. 
But what made a lasting impression on me was when I actually visited the crypt, that downstairs in the basement. Everyone wants to leave a lasting legacy in this world, and the crypt is full of sarcophagi of, of great men. The only thing was, when I visited, I only could recognize just about two names. Two names. All who were buried there were great men of their days. But I could recognize two men's names. Work for food that lasts eternally. Search after that. Believe and trust in the Lordship of Christ and live all of your lives in front of Him. The world may forget who you are. People may forget. But what you do in trusting relationship with Jesus will endure to eternal life. So, what are we searching for when we come to church? What do we search? Uh, what are we seeking in our lives? And the second point, uh, to, the, to the people who search for the right things, great gift is offered to us. And when Jesus asked the crowd to trust him, they answered back in verse 30 and 31. So if you look down, they say, What sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. And as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Remember, Jesus just fed the 5,000 people. I don't know the mechanics of the miracle, whether the food basket replenished, replenished itself as they took the food out, or a little morsel of food grew in their, in their hands. I don't know. But in their disbelief, the crowd demands another miracle. It's as if they didn't see the first miracle at all. And just as their ancestors didn't understand the significance of the miracle of feeding of manna, the crowd also misses the significance of this miracle. About 1,500 years before that miracle, Moses said, I pointed out that sending of manna wasn't about the food. It wasn't about filling their stomach. It was about God who provides. And there's a famous uh, verse, Deuteronomy 8, 3. You don't need to look it up, but Deuteronomy 8, um, verse 3. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither knew you or your father had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He fed you, Moses said, to teach you that you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The point of giving the manna wasn't the food itself, it wasn't the feeding itself. The point was about who fed them. The point was to teach them that they didn't live by bread alone, but God, but by God's word. It was God uh, who rescued them, God who guided them, God who fed them, God who sustained them, God who delivered them into the land of Canaan. They were alive because of God. He fed them. He fed you to teach you that man does not live on bread alone. And really, Jesus makes the same point in verse 32. I tell you the truth. It's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who, who gives you this bread. It wasn't Moses who provided, but it was God himself. But this time, Jesus hints at, hints, hints at more. Look down to verse 33. 
For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. True bread, he says, comes down from heaven and then it gives life to the people. He's not really talking about manna anymore. Of course, the crowd doesn't get it yet again and asks, in verse um, 35, Sir, give us this bread. Well, in verse 34, and he, he answers in 35, Simply, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The feeding of Israel was an offer of God's provision. On the plain of Galilee, feeding of 5,000, the offer is much more radical. God offers himself to the world. I am the bread of life. Rather than food, God offers himself the provider to the world. He invites people to be in him and he in us. He offers an intimate relationship with God himself, with those who would trust him. Providing manna in the desert shows that man lives in relationship with God. And Jesus says he has come to die for us so that we could live in him and he in us. He is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him will never go hungry and whoever believes in him will never thirst. On one level, he is the bread of life because whoever believes in him will never taste death because God will raise him on the last day, he says in verse 39. Those who trust him will not taste death at the end of life, but will be raised to live in fullness of relationship with God. In fact, that's, Jesus says that is the reason why he came in verse 40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Those who trust him will not taste the bitterness of death. And Christians die knowing that death is not the ultimate trap, but an assurance that we will, raise, we will, uh, we will rise again. The crowd asked for bread that will fill their stomach. What Jesus offered is the giving of himself, a relationship with him, and therefore an eternal life with him. But once again, to the people who, who are so used to thinking horizontally, they cannot think beyond this earth. And just as their ancestors grumbled, do you remember their ancestors grumbled in the desert? They grumbled, they began to grumble. They say, we know his father and mother. How can he say he's from heaven? And they don't yet understand that he's saying much more, that he is God himself. And Jesus just simply repeats his statement again. But he, um, I am the bread of life but ratchets up his claim a bit further. He now says that they have to eat him in verse 51. I am the bread that comes from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the world. In fact, unless we eat the flesh and drink his blood, we cannot have eternal life. Well, how can we eat his body? And how can we drink his blood? I think there is an unmistakable allusion to communion here. In the communion, we remember and celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and eat his flesh and drink his blood. 
But there isn't, this isn't the Last Supper. This isn't happening right before he was dying. He, he, he died. He's not sitting around the table saying, This is my body and this is my blood. There's no physical bread or wine with him. Well, not, no physical wine with him. In fact, in the Gospel of John, there's no Last Communion at all. There's no communion at all in the Gospel of John. I think what John is doing is he's reacting against the religiosity that has taken over that day. Communion was an important practice from the very beginning. And it seems that they became so important that the thing itself started to take on meaning by itself apart from its significance. Eating the bread and drinking the blood became more important than the meaning, the significance attached to it. The ritual itself became important. And this is a common practice that happens even now uh, around the world. So many people um, think by being religious, they will know God. They will be close to God. But this is certainly not the case. And what John does here, and what Jesus does here, is Jesus ties the ritual and the significance together. Jesus ties the eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood to people's faith in him. So in verse 35, there's just constant uh, uh, emphasis of faith. Jesus um, says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in him will never go thirsty. It's faith that matters. In verse 47, he says, Truly, very truly, the one who believes has eternal life. It is the receiving of Jesus' words in faith that is important. Uh, If you scroll down to verse 63, he says again, The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. The words are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not yet believe In this way, Jesus ties in faith in Jesus' words and the acts of communion together. You cannot have true communion without faith in Jesus Christ. And if you trust in Jesus, then you will eat the flesh of his son and drink his blood um, in the right way. The communion is such a potent reminder of God's grace for us. He says, actually, unless you eat the flesh and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So he's not, I'm not saying, and, and, and John's certainly not saying, communion, communion is not important. He's saying this is very, very important. But the eating and drinking means nothing apart from the faith in Christ. And that is still true. I think what this tells us is that even religion... Even Christian practices, even Christianly uh, 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 practices, can sometimes become substitute for the satisfaction we gain in relationship with Jesus. People felt that their needs were met because they were eating, they were participating in the communion. In their focus on the practice, they miss the real presence of Jesus. People fill their spiritual hunger, still do this, by attending a Sunday service, by being good, 
by being attentive to the, ser- uh, to, to, the, to the sermon. Thank you. It's very hot, and you're doing really well. Tithing, speaking in tongue, having charismatic experiences, or even receiving communion, all these practices are good things. However, they must be tied to faith in Jesus, to having a living relationship with Christ. So the question is, how are you fed by Christ? Are you fed by Christ or are you fed by religious practices, religious experiences? And even Christian religions, religious experiences, also do not last, do they? After a very high of a uh, uh, sort of spiritual high, after a... uh, 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 our weekend away together, a week away together. I often fi- find myself hitting a low. Um, we often need the next fix of deeper worship, deeper prayer. Over time, sometimes people grow weary and cynical. All our religious experiences must be an expression of our faith in Jesus, not its substitute. Faith in his identity, who he is, in his words, must be the root out of which all of our Christian practices grow. Or we miss the point. Jesus doesn't offer religious experiences. Jesus offers himself as the bread of life. But we become, often become people who feed on Cheetos, Cheetos, I think that's, people eat here in Hong Kong, yeah? Um, that leave us, leaves us hungry in a few hours. Once again, is it singing you want in a church service, or is it Christ? Is it Christ whom the songs point to? Is it a religious ritual like communion that's feeding us? Or do we see the death and resurrection in the communion practice? Are you a Christian because you do things? Or are you a Christian because you have received Christ in your hearts and you have a living relationship with him? I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never, thir- never go thirsty. But accepting all of this is not easy. Christians often believe that if we live our lives following Jesus, that we'll be liked by everybody. But even the most superficial reading of the Bible says that's not a biblical way of thinking. We can plainly see that men rejected Christ. They crucified him. The crowd responds with hostility even in this instance in verse 660, they say on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is hard teaching, who can accept it? And they were offended by what Jesus taught. Once again, uh, John uses the word grumbling in verse 61 to describe their response. His words will offend them again and again until they kill him on another Passover day. And Jesus answers them in the second half of verse 61, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Well, if the crowd is offended by the fact that he came down from heaven, 
They're in for a surprise because Jesus will ascend and will be seated on high. He says, he's not a mere Moses-like prophet who asks for bread of life to God. He is God himself, the provider, the bread of life itself, the source of all things that satisfy on earth. But the crowd turns away. Look down to verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. This is difficult teaching. Who can accept it? And Jesus himself seems to be affected by their response. And he turns to his disciples in 67. You don't want to leave too, do you? It's a sharp, sharp question. You don't want to leave too, do you? It's a question that reveals the, the thoughts of the disciples. It was a deeply divisive question back then, as it is now. One that Jesus still asks us. What do you think about me? You don't want to leave uh, me now, do you? Jesus was a divisive figure. But in our modern day, in our modern culture, the culture celebrates ambiguity over certainty, doubt over faith. And at this, at this time, certain faith in the identity of Jesus is to be shunned. People don't want to say, Jesus is the bread of life. People like to say there are many ways that lead to God. People in our culture would love to, uh, for all of, us say, all of us to say, you are right, but I'm right too. Maybe all people who are sincerely seeking are right. They want to unite the world under the banner of ambiguity and uncertainty. But Jesus would have no such unity. He says, I am the bread of life. And we could divide this room according to our height, race, hair color, education level, nationality, wealth. But how one answers this question is the most important way of dividing, for this division has eternal consequences. You do not want to leave too, do you? And Peter answers in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. He saw that the, behind the feeding of 5,000 stood God himself who offered himself to humanity. He saw Jesus Christ was God himself, the Holy One of God. Jesus' teaching is difficult. It divides families and friends back then and now on earth, in our time on earth, but also eternally. And if there are among you who, um, who do not yet understand who he is, who have not decided to follow and trust him, I hope you'll join us in the coming weeks and months and discover who Jesus is. To most of us who have decided to follow Jesus, we must realize that the road of discipleship is a difficult one. His teaching is both difficult to understand times and certainly difficult to follow. 
the way that Jesus becomes the bread that everyone can eat and be filled was to do the will of God. The will that led him to be betrayed, to be crucified. And we must remind ourselves again and again that that is the Jesus that we decided to follow. The crucified king. But if you remember, God does raise him from the dead. And so we will have life eternal with him. He is the bread of life. But to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. It's my first week here at Shatin. But I hope together we will resolve to do just that throughout our time in Shatin. To seek the right thing. To seek Jesus Christ. To be fed by who he is in all the things that we do. In our singing, in our praying, in our communion, in, all, in our fellowship. And follow his will, no matter how costly that may be. For there is eternal life there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much once again that you have died for us. That you feed us with yourself. That we can have eternal life in you. But Lord, we pray that as the road is difficult, that your Holy Spirit will, Spirit will remind us of what, how we can live in, in our faith in you. Um, and help us to do your will at all times, no matter how difficult that may be. And therefore, we pray that all of our lives, everything that we do, will last eternally and will bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.